Well, again, I wish you a good morning and I'm excited to be here. We are in First Peter, a study of First Peter epistle written by an apostle named Peter. <laughs> and uh, I love it. The Bible keeps it simple, right? F.B. Meyer said this, Learn to put your hand on all spiritual blessings in Christ and say, mine. Now that's really our problem as Christians when facing any kind of trial or suffering or difficulty. We really, we don't really know what we have in our salvation. We're not familiar with what we've got when he saved us. The Bible calls our salvation an inheritance. And that's what Peter uses to encourage these battered believers. And with that, make sure you're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And let me read this text out loud and you follow quietly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Can you imagine being this person? It is World War II and you live near Germany and you're Jewish. And you've heard that they are doing bad things to Jews over there. You don't know what they're doing, but you have heard of this. And that they are taking people as prisoners. And you've heard that they're treating them horrifically. Then you hear of a woman who is hiding Jews in her basement. And you also hear that the authorities are in town to collect all Jews, that they might take them to the camp. And so you go to her house, and she hides you in her basement. And you, you in, in doing this, hear that the authorities show up, and they leave. And you're safe. And imagine that later on that you come to find out that all those stories were true. And that thousands upon thousands of Jews were exterminated in some of the most horrific ways. She saved her life. Would it be odd for you to remember what she did for the rest of your life? I mean, would it be out of place to thank her 
It may be to express your thanks incessantly, persistently, and constantly for the rest of your life. Now we all would understand, and a woman named Corey Tenboom actually did that, who hid those Jewish people. She rescued many of them. Now listen, I tell you that because in a greater way, that's what verses 3 through 5 are talking about. In a greater way. You remember that Rome has blamed the fires that destroyed a bunch of houses on the Christians at this time that Peter is writing this. And so the heat is getting turned up and Rome is after the Christians. Now, the suffering is not quite to the level where they are killing many Christians yet, but the threats are there and it is every direction and they can feel the heat as the fires are getting turned up. And so you have the empire and they start persecuting Christians in various ways. And so suffering is coming and Peter says to these people that are now facing suffering for being Christians, he says to them, listen, you've been eternally rescued from the greater suffering, so you should be thankful. What's the greater suffering? Hell, right? The wrath of God against sin, and you've been given salvation. You've been given what it says here, what it calls an inheritance. When it says in verse 3, blessed be God, it's actually a call to worship. And so he says, you need to praise God. You need, he says, listen, I want to bring comfort to you. And the place to start with that comfort is by making you remember all that you have in your salvation and to get you to a place of praising God for it. For your inheritance your spiritual inheritance. You say, what inheritance? Notice the key word there in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. And then he tells us what our inheritance is in verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he calls it a salvation, and we described that salvation last time. There are different parts to it, but there's a part called glorification. And in that, where you get to be connected with your inheritance, That's a definition of the inheritance then. He says, bless God for that. Praise Him for the indestructible, irrefutable, inflexible, immortal inheritance that you have. Did you know that that's one of the main reasons why we gather? Hebrews 10, to encourage each other by praising God for our eternal inheritance. That's why we get together. And we help each other. We stimulate each other. With that, in Peter's day, people have blamed the Christians for the bad. The Christians are scattered around and Peter says, guys, stop focusing on what's happening to you. You are, you're looking in the wrong direction. We do the same, don't we? Oftentimes, life kind of goes like this for us. 
we start at a point and then we begin to look outward and then we begin to look inward and we stop there. And he says, get your eyes up. Start looking up. Get your eyes on what you have from God and your salvation. There's nothing that they can take from you on this earth that you don't have in a greater measure in heaven. Nothing. So praise God for that. See, So right here in verse 3 is really a call to worship. I mean, it's a... It's a call to praise God. I mean, that's usually the first thing that goes, by the way, when times get tough, your worship. You begin to get anxious and you start thinking about you and what am I going to do? And you start making lists and maybe some of you start getting depressed. Now, there are a lot of ways that Peter could have looked to comfort these guys. First Peter 5, he sees himself as their shepherd. You have these suffering Christians. You're going through stuff. Life has lots of pressures, lots of trial, lots of no fair moments. But you know what you don't see here? Hallmark. It's not here. There's no sap here. He's not trying to get them to just, hey, you know, get together, give each other hugs, and just focus on the good times. He doesn't do that. He says, I want you to get your eyes up. And by the way, he doesn't even say, guys, I feel, I feel so bad for you where you are. It's just terrible. None of that in the beginning. We have, you know, you can take classes on how to comfort people and everything. And oftentimes, one of the first things it talks about is doing that very thing, is trying to connect into their Sorrow, finding some sympathy, finding some empathy for them. Now that is important. But did you know that's not the most important? Did you know that the most important actually is to get your eyes up? He says, get your minds up and think about what you have in your salvation. And then push out some serious praise to God, okay? When you do that, he says, will you get loud about worshiping him? Will you get loud about worshiping him? I tell you, beloved, it always bothers me when you get around Christians and the music gets going and you hardly hear the people singing. And worse, and I've been there, I've been there where you're not even singing at all. You think, ah, that, not me, that's not me. And I think to myself, Boy, that's crazy to not be like that. I go to Russia to a people who live through persecution, and I'll never forget this moment. It was one of the first couple days that I'd, I'd gotten there. And we hadn't start. I'd gotten there on a weekend, and we were going to start teaching class on the Monday. And it was either a Saturday or Sunday, but we were in the basement, and we were eating soup and all kinds of bread. I'm a big bread guy, so I was... It was working for me. But then we just got, they just, they just started singing. I don't know these songs. That's okay, though. I, I got their heart. So where's the piano guy? There was no piano. It's 
they were just worshiping. Not us. We get oh I don't want I don't want to sound weird or crazy and I don't you know, I don't want it to be a weird thing. We have so much to learn. They were singing at the top of their lungs. What do they have to sing about with all their restrictions and very little freedom? This inheritance. That's what they have to sing about. And I'm left thinking, man, what's our problem? Why are we why are we so quiet? Oh, that we would see what we have and then get loud about it. Let's get excited. That our praise would rise up so strong with so much passion. You know, I think sometimes Calvinists are afraid that they might come across as charismatic or something like that. I don't know. That's crazy. We should get thoughts like that out of our head. Now the message is the world may reject you and it may make you feel like an alien, but you're not rejected in God's eyes. You might be, you know, losing your earthly inheritance, but God has a greater one for you in heaven, an eternal one, one that is secure forever. Now that's the idea behind blessed be our God and Father. I was thinking about this. And I was drawn to Revelation. Have you ever read it? I don't know when was the last time you read Revelation. Uh, I was with a, a, a group uh, studying this as we were, we were putting together children's curriculum. That's right, children's curriculum to study Revelation. So, ooh, that, that, that's interesting, right? Imagine that, right? All these graphic stuff and picturesque and everything. You know the one thing that just kept standing out to all of us as we were working this through? The worship. The worship. Chapter 4, verse 8, Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Day and night, it says, they do not cease. Chapter 5, verse 8, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They sang a new song. Some of you, you know, are so concerned. Oh, but I don't know the words and everything. Are you kidding me? You better get used to stuff like that. Neither, neither do these guys in heaven. They sang a new song, it says. Verse 11, the voice of many angels around the throne. Verse 12, it says, they sang with a loud voice. You got your clue there, right? Worthy is the Lamb. Verse 13 tells us every created thing in heaven and on earth was just letting it out. To the Lamb be glory. Again, verse 14, the elders are falling down. They're always falling down. You see, somebody help them to work on their balance. No, they're doing that on purpose. You know the reason why? They fell down because they couldn't get any lower. There was a basement stopping them. And that's God's mercy, right? Something stopping them from going any lower. But that's where they wanted to be because one look at God and He's way up high. However low you can take me is how low I should be. That's what their thought was. And what's fascinating to me is that Revelation is really known for two things. 
It is known for the massive amount of suffering and trial and tribulation and pain and blood. And you just read that thing, it is everywhere. Okay? But it is also known, and you'll see this all throughout the book of Revelation, he keeps pausing. It just keeps pausing for praise. He can't go more than about one or two chapters without saying, all right, that's it. Let's take a look at heaven. And all of heaven was worshiping the Lord and and they were shouting, hallelujah. Read it. You'll see. Praise and worship to Christ. Why? Because in all of this, in all this suffering, in all this trial, in all this tribulation and blood, all this, these believers were connected to their inheritance. And they understood it. Maybe that's why our worship can be so quiet and without such meaning because we don't understand it, beloved. We need to understand our inheritance. Peter says, you ought to think about what you have and then let it rip. Let it rise up. Let it rise up your worship. All right, what should I think about? Here we go. Verses 3 to 5. Five things. In each of these aspects of the inheritance we have in our salvation that should lift up our worship. First of all, the substance of our inheritance. Verse 3. What is the substance of it? That is this. What does it say? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The substance of our inheritance is God Himself. And in fact, it is God Himself in a particular way. He wants us to think about God Himself, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a father-son connection that is unique and different than any other. He is not father to you and I in the same way that he is father to Jesus. One in essence, three in person. The other thing to get from this, and so he's the source really of our inheritance, but he's also the substance of our inheritance. God himself, he is our reward. He's the source and the substance. Think about this. When you think about inheritance, you often think about it in, you know, in terms of what you get and, and, you know, you, and when the person dies, right? It's yours by promise, right? Hey, I've seen the papers. I'm going to get this or whatever. Or they've told me. Maybe you don't even know yet. Sort of what this is, it's, 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 it's a promise. And it's a promise of something eternal made by the eternal one. Okay? And so when it says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's another way of saying God who is triune. God the Father whom God the Son belongs to. Now, in the New Testament, when it connects the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, it is making the point that He is the Father to Jesus in a way that He is not the Father to any of us, telling us true God came down here and took on skin. That's what this is. And we talked a little bit about the description of Jesus, three parts to it. Jesus, that is his incarnation. Lord, that is his sovereignty. And Christ, that is his anointing as Messiah King, that he is royal. We could say it a different way. God is revealed in Jesus Christ to us. 
fact, actually, if you put it all together, verses 1 and 2, we learn about how we are the chosen. And so we are chosen then to receive an inheritance that comes with everything that God is. No limitations then to our riches, right? Sometimes I think we, we, we elevate and marvel at the wrong people. No, oh, can you imagine what it is to be Bill Gates and all the money and stuff he has? And I think to myself, well, Bill was created by somebody that has more. I mean, what does God own? What are the things that you need? Well, I mean, well, he owns it all, right? And to have him then is to have everything, see? And instead of getting enamored by stuff of our inheritance, by being enamored by stuff, that is, our inheritance says that we should be enamored by him. It tells us, oh, it's, this is good stuff. But imagine him. You know, in Flock, I think it was Flock, that somebody had mentioned about Luke 5 and Peter. He was told, go out and fish. He says, I fished all night. Caught nothing. Do it again. He comes back. He's got all this fish. And what does he do? He falls down and says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. What about the fish? He doesn't care about the fish. He doesn't care about the stuff of this world. He knows where that stuff came from now. Look, he directed all that fish into the boat. He could do a whole lot more for my life if I let him. Now, that's the substance of it. Why do we have it though? I mean, what... Why us? What made the Lord want to give it to us? Next point, point number two, the stimulant of our inheritance. What made the triune God want to give us an inheritance? Was it our good wit? Was it our charm? Or our, maybe our amazing discoveries? We're so smart, right? All the things that we do to help people, maybe that was what made him give us an inheritance. No, none of that. Verse 3. Now here's a critical and key attribute of God who according to His great mercy, His mercy caused Him to give us an inheritance. Say that again. Think about that again. His mercy caused Him to give us and inheritance. Our inheritance is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Mercy is what made God give us that. Mercy. Now the Bible connects our salvation with God's mercy all over the place. Remember, you know, Titus 3, 5, Blessed be God, right? He saved us according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Mercy by regeneration. That's what comes at salvation. Same thing in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, saved us by grace. He did. The grace came by mercy. 
It came from mercy. Mercy, let me say it this way. Mercy is what pushed out grace. Did you know that? That's what Ephesians 2 says. Because he was rich with mercy, he could save us by grace. I need to understand mercy a little more if you're telling me that's the thing that comes before the grace. Think about that a little more. Now, what is mercy? I'll give you a few places to hang your thoughts on. Now, remember Mark chapter 10? And the guy, you had the blind, we studied this a, a, a little while back. You had that blind guy, Bartimaeus. And he's crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he does this twice. And what's that guy's condition? Well, he's blind and he's begging. And he's needy. And he's unable to help himself. And he's dependent on people actually even getting him to the right place. I mean, could you imagine that? He's crying out mercy and maybe he's crying out. And Jesus is over there and he's crying out over here. And maybe somebody turns him, right, to face Jesus. So I, I, you're saying, Jesus, have mercy. He's over there. Turn him, right? He doesn't know. He's dependent on it, uh, people. This guy is in a pitiful condition, full of misery. How about Luke 16? Jesus gives the story of a rich man and, and, and a poor man named Lazarus, and both of them die. And the rich guy goes to hell and sees Lazarus with, with Abraham and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. Now, what kind of agony do you have to be that you would take even a drop off of somebody's finger? Right? You're saying, I, I, w- I would even take that. It's as though he's saying, I understand, I'm in the place that I should be, I deserve this. I'll even take just a drop from the guy's finger. So, in our building up of this, you could add the word agony. I'm in agony. And so mercy has to do with being in a condition of being pitiful, being miserable, being in agony, being desperate, begging, like a, like a blind beggar, unable to help yourself. How about the guy in Luke 18? Remember that parable? The, Jesus gave this parable, tax collector in church, unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven, it says, and he was standing some distance away, and it says he was beating his breast. God be merciful to me, the sinner. What, what, are, you, what are you wanting? Relief from the misery. What is so miserable? Somebody go send this guy to a counselor or something, right? Send him to somebody that can help him. You know what he would have said? I don't need a counselor. I don't need somebody. I need Jesus. What is so miserable? It's his conscience. He feels guilty from all his sins. Have you ever been to that place where you feel so much 
guilt. That it has brought you to a place of just being distraught. Psalm 32, David said, my sins have eaten away at me. They physically have made me sick. So put it together. All of these people cry out for mercy. So what is mercy then? Mercy is God showing mercy to us because he saw miserable, wretched, pitiful people, desperate people, agonizing people, needy people, unable to help ourselves people, on fire and unable to stop the flames kind of people, dying people, feeling like we are dying spiritually. That is where we are all at spiritually without Christ, right? And by the way, that's what sin has done. What? What has it done? It's made us corrupt and blind and foolish and lost and enslaved, powerless to sin. This is the thing that I tell the person who says, I don't believe in God, and I will say to you, well, you will never know the power over your sin. Never. You will never be able to say no to it. Titus 3 calls people like that haters. Lustful. Jeremiah 17, deceitful. 2 Timothy 3, selfish. And here comes God, and what is He? Compassionate. Patient. 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says, When I think about my salvation, I remember that I was shown mercy. Verse 16, Jesus Christ demonstrated, he says, his perfect patience. That's what's connected to mercy, patience. Patience goes with mercy. He sees your pitiful condition and is patient with it. And then comes to help you. Mark 10, there is grief for our condition. He, he feels what we're experiencing. He feels it. Salvation is God being merciful, showing mercy to pitiful sinners like us. Now, to try to help you understand this even more, we can put then mercy right next to grace. Listen how John MacArthur compares those two attributes. He says, Mercy has respect to man's wretched, miserable condition. Grace has respect to man's guilt, which has caused that condition. When God gives us mercy, it is to change our condition. When God gives us grace, it is to change our position. You understand that? One takes us from guilt to acquittal, the other takes us from misery to glory. End quote. That's helpful. Condition, position. Mercy deals with the condition. You see what happened at salvation then? God looked at you in your misery and he felt it and he had compassion and he saw the condition and said, I feel bad. And I will do something. 
The Old Testament tells us all over the place that God is like that. That was the core attribute that God defined himself with to Moses. Remember that? Exodus 33, Moses said, show me your glory. In Exodus 34, just a few verses later, God said, all right, but only the backside because you can't handle all of me. And so God did that and then he described what that was. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. You see that word compassionate? That's the that's also tra- translated full of mercy. The Lord God, full of mercy and grace. Slow to anger. Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. You know why David said that, verse 14? Because arrogant men were coming against him. In other words, hey, people hate me. I need your mercy. Why? Because I'm miserable in this place. Psalm 108, verse 4, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens. What he means by that is your mercy. Your mercy is above the heavens. It's It's like a canopy for heaven. See? Mercy is. Everyone in heaven looks up and sees mercy and says, Oh, okay, got you. Now it makes sense that I'm here. Because there's mercy. Micah 7.18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over rebellion, doesn't retain his anger forever? Why? Listen, because he delights in mercy. Unchanging love, loving kindness. He delights in mercy. Why? Because he sees us in our misery and says, I can do something about that. Lamentations 3.22 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His mercies never fail. That's incredible, but listen this to this. There's a side note in the text. You can also translate this this way. That we are not consumed. In other words, it is because of His mercies that we are not consumed. Keeps us from, from consumption. Now, here we go. First Peter 1 1. We were chosen. Why? Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And then First Peter 1 3. Out of his great mercy, he chose us to demonstrate his mercy. Out of that mercy, he gives us this incredible inheritance. Now, why are we so unthankful then? But doesn't that make you want to sing? Make does for me. The substance of our inheritance, God Himself, came from Him. It's all about Him. Stimulation of our, inherit, our inheritance. What made God want to give it to us is mercy. He saw us sinners. So, how does it actually get to us? Thirdly, let's call this one the spawn of our inheritance. What caused us to receive this inheritance? What pushed God's own hand of mercy to give it to the pitiful sinner? Verse 3. Has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
And the key words there are the two words, born again. Only people with the new birth get the inheritance. Now, it can't just be mercy. Mercy has to be connected to an activity. Mercy deals with our condition. We said this already. Grace deals with the position, and now we're going to really get in the, in the contact with that, in the connection with that. Mercy has to be connected to a means. Mercy is God feeling our need. New birth is God saying, I'll do what it takes. Mercy said, how do we get rebellious, blind, stubborn sinners to receive this inheritance purchased with blood? And that is a good question. Without the new birth, our eyes look at this kind of inheritance and it doesn't look valuable. It's like Matthew 13. You remember that one? The guy is going and he says he stumbles across this field And in stumbling across this field, he stumbles across a pearl of great value. And it says, he went then and purchased the field so that he can have the pearl. Isn't that interesting? You ever wonder that? Why don't you just grab the pearl and go? He wants the field. fascinating to me. Sells everything to have that property so that he can have one pearl because of its value. Before mercy we just saw the land with no value. Before it, it was just dirt. We looked at Christianity and we said it's just dirt. These people, Jesus people, dirt. It's all it is. Walk by it all the time. It's property. The eye of the beholder, right? It's just dirt. Maybe we saw rocks. Maybe we thought the view was terrible. We didn't think the neighborhood would be fun, that it would be any good. I mean, look at the people. I don't even have anything in common with these strange people. And then mercy came. And what did mercy have to do? It had to change how we saw things. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sins. We had no life. Titus 3, it says that we were haters of God, haters of people. John 3, that we were lovers of pleasure and not God. Jeremiah 13, 23, mark this one down. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, what can be done? You can't change yourself. You had to become another person. Second Corinthians 5, the old things have to go. You had to become a new creation. You, you can't make yourself a new creation. And some of you have tried. I'm just going to do better. Have you noticed that it doesn't work? You did better for the five minutes and then you're back to not being better, right? Turning over a new leaf doesn't work. I'm going to go to the meetings and now I'm going to commit to being the guy that doesn't do that thing. 
Yeah, but now you're doing other things. What do you need? You need a change. A kind of change that happens from the inside out. Now, to activate the inheritance, you had to become born again. Now, think about that. It it says, has caused us to be born again. Ephesians 2, 3 says, We were by nature children of wrath, heirs of wrath. And because we were chosen, that means we had an inheritance before we were born again. We just didn't know it. Peter really makes the point of it because he actually says it again in verse 23. Look at 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. Verse 25, the word that was preached to you. So follow it here, watch. You heard the gospel and God caused you to be born again. That's how it happened. What that means is transformation. And boy, did he have to transform you, right? He had to give you new desires, new thoughts, new direction of life. And if you want a a picture, turn to John 3, and I'm going to give you this picture. John chapter 3. In John 3, it's the same idea, and it is even the, the very same word here, in John 3. The word of new birth. Be born again. Very familiar passage. Nicodemus is this Pharisee and, and he comes to visit Jesus at night. There's a little fear there in him doing this. He doesn't want any of any other Pharisee to see him you know, talking with Jesus. So, he comes at night and he goes privately and he's heard Jesus preach before, so it's not like, you know it's not like this is brand new in terms of just, you know, he like he's hearing Jesus say things for the first time. He's heard Jesus give the gospel, his and his heart and mind are bothered by some things, and he comes with conviction. The first thing I want you to notice that Nicodemus and coming with all this conviction, Jesus doesn't say, this is great. Look at you. You're convicted. That's wonderful. You're almost there, Nicodemus. He doesn't say that. doesn't encourage him in that conviction. Conviction alone does not get you into the kingdom. In fact... He needs some answers because he's uncomfortable. And you know what? Jesus makes him feel guilty. And that is his purpose. What? Shouldn't his purpose be to comfort him and make him feel better about himself? No. We already told you. You don't get in until you see your need for mercy. And you don't see your need for mercy unless you feel like you're a miserable person. So you've got to get that per- person to a place of misery. If you want to pray for something, you say, yeah, I've got these unsafe people. Maybe even they're, they're your own kids. You know what you should pray for? Misery. You say, well, that's not very nice. Are you kidding me? It's the only way they'll get saved. They need to know. They need to feel the misery. So that then they cry out to the merciful Savior. 
So here he is, and Jesus makes him feel guilty and make, makes Nicodemus confused because he thought the direction that he was going in life was fine and was right until Jesus came around with his preaching, and now he's afraid he might be wrong. And so verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice, it is a seeing problem. Nicodemus can't see the problem. He can't see where the kingdom is. He can't see how to get in. He can't see that he's on the outside looking in. What's he need? To be born again. Jesus says that. He said, what's that mean? Real simple. Start over. Do over. But even more than that, scrap whatever your life has been up till now and get a new one. He said, maybe I just need, maybe my life just needs a little tweaking. Nope. You need to take your life put it in the dump truck and go to wherever the dump place is and get rid of it. Listen, let me say it this way. All that is connected to what he has called life till now has to die. If you need new birth, that means you have to have old death, right? Now, can you imagine Nicodemus coming to Jesus? This guy is one of the premier religious leaders in the land. And maybe he was thinking, I wonder if Jesus is going to have me tweak this thing over here. Or maybe he's going to have me change this thing over there. Maybe it's my approach. Maybe just reshape my life a little. In other words, I want to come to him and get reevaluated by Jesus and let him give me some pointers and see if I like those. No, that's, that's not what's going on. Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, get rid of your life. I don't, I, don't need, I don't need your life. I don't need your life. It's not helping you. I have no place for it in the kingdom. Take your values, take your dreams, take your hopes, everything about your system, and just go put it in the garbage. He says, this is harsh. Oh, yeah. I hope you're feeling that because that's what Nicodemus was feeling. Jesus was basically telling him, what you have isn't worth anything. It's not worth anything. All the great religious knowledge and deeds mean nothing to God. You've got to be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus says, how? Go back into mommy's tummy? Now, he knows that, uh, by the way, that Jesus doesn't mean to literally be born a second time. But what Nicodemus is saying when he says that is this. Now, listen, listen to this here. How can a man just dump his whole system when he's been doing this, his life, for way so long, right? He's doing this life this way for so long, how can he just dump it? And it's, it's become who, my, who I am. I mean, how can I just change who I am? 
You're asking me to change who I am. Actually, Jesus is saying, who you are won't do. You do need change, but I'm not asking you to do that. Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 5. You've got to be born of water and spirit. And what does that mean? Well, Nicodemus knows what Jesus means, actually. That's, a, that's an idea that's straight out of Ezekiel 36. You've got to have sins cleansed from out of you, and you've got to have the Holy Spirit placed in you. So there's got to be something that goes, and there's got to be something that comes. What goes? Your sin. Impurity. That which is unclean. It's got to go. Well, what replaces it? You can't just have removal. Holy Spirit. The heart of stone has got to be removed. The heart of flesh has got to be replaced. And that implies new birth. There's got to be a new you. There's got to be a different heart. I mean, you know this, Nicodemus. Ezekiel 36. You, you, you probably have taught Ezekiel 36 as a, as a you know, good Pharisee. You've got to have that kind of transformation. And maybe he's taught it and he hasn't understood it. Verse 6, Nicodemus, you're not spiritual. And until God's Spirit is in you, then you're not saved. Verse 7, don't be amazed at this. Why does Jesus have to tell him that? Well, think about it. What's the obvious? Because he is amazed. He's shaking his head going, uh, he can't believe what he's hearing. Jesus says, verse 8, well, okay, you need help, don't you? All right, here we go. Here's your help. I want you to think about the wind. I mean, you know when it is around, right? And you get the presence of wind. You understand that. You can't explain where it comes from, how it got here, but you know the presence of it. And here's the point, that a person cannot explain why he knows that he needs to become born again, but he knows he needs the new birth. How? The Spirit made him see that. I told you it was a seeing problem. How did he do that? Through the gospel. In other words, it's not something that you can do with your little rules and laws that you follow, Nicodemus. You can't get rid of sin that way. You can't get God's perfect righteousness that way. You need a new heart. You need a new desire, a new obedience, a new direction, a new walk, a new power, a new love. Again, verse 9. Nicodemus says, how? How? Verse 10. I love that Jesus never lets him off the hook. Huh, aren't you the teacher in Israel? By the way, definite article, and what he's telling him is, you're a big shot to Israel. And you don't even get this. You know what he's telling Nicodemus? It's not by knowledge. In other words, your system is broken that even being at the top doesn't help you see that you need to be born again. You can have all the degrees and all the experiences that people have and all the culture and all the popularity and all the religion does you no good if you're not born again. So how do you get the new birth? Jesus tells him. Look at verse 14. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now there it is. He said, okay, help me. <laughs> Here we go. And maybe you looked at all that and you said, I, I get the word believe. That's the word I understand. Everything else, I'm not sure why he said that. All right, here we go. Jesus, what he does here is he points to some Old Testament truth that Nicodemus would be familiar with, okay? It's a, it's a true story from, from the Old Testament. Numbers 21. You can write that down. Numbers 21. Moses lifted up a snake in the desert in Numbers 21. Why did he do that? Well, like usual, the Israelites got themselves into trouble, got themselves into sin, some sin thing, and the Lord allowed a bunch of fiery snakes to bite them, killing off thousands of Israelites, okay? You got these fiery snakes. You say, well, what sin did they commit? Are you ready for this one? They grumbled. Complained. Complaining against God. I mean, they got real impatient with God for all the suffering that they had in the desert. Now think about that. They were complaining about their suffering life. So God sent fiery snakes, and then it says there that many people died, okay? So you got the picture? So the Lord has Moses make a fiery serpent out of bronze, and he puts it up on a pole and lifts this pole up. And if a person was bit by looking at that bronze serpent, he didn't die. All right, Nicodemus, what's that mean? What's Jesus saying to you? pretty obvious. The Son of Man has to be lifted up like a bronze serpent on a pole. Nicodemus would be thinking, okay, and I remember that. People looked up there and they got healed. They got rescued. They were saved from their predicament. Okay? What is this? It's a picture of the Jesus on the cross, isn't it? Now, what needs to be done? Believe in Him. Believe in Him for what? So you won't be killed by snake bite. Numbers 21, think about it. Now you say, wait, the Israelites were being killed by snake bite. Are you saying that I'm dying from snake bite? Yes. What is the snake? He said, oh, it's Satan, isn't it? No. No, you say, he's a snake. Yeah, but not here. The snake is the whole system you've put your hope in. You're being killed by your system. He's telling him. Nicodemus, your system's killing you. Everyone has a system to save them. For most, it's a system of works. Do more good ones than bad ones. And Jesus says, that system is snake bit. It won't do. It's it's going down. It's killing you. You're already dead. You know what you need? You need to look at the cure on the cross and believe in Him. It's pretty simple, isn't it? What's the picture? Jesus on the cross like a dead snake. You uncomfortable with that? He, he, well, think of it this way then. 
He took the venom of sin for us and became the snake so we could be rescued from our snake bit system of false righteousness. Our system of righteousness. It's incredible. That's how a person becomes born again. That's how a person gets the new birth. You see it? Nicodemus, if you want the new birth, you have to admit you're a sinner. You've got to admit your system is broken and that you need Jesus Christ as the sin bearer of your life. That's what he's saying. You do that and the Spirit will clean your heart and give you a new life. See, Back to 1 Peter 3. You say, is that the way the Bible really describes it? Absolutely. John 1.13, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It's all that is saying the same thing that 1 Peter 1, 3 is saying. He caused us to be born again. To get a new nature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, to become a new man. There's no hope in your system. It's a, it's a dead hope. It's, it's a dying hope. You hear people sometimes say, man, I hope I've done enough to get me to heaven. You know what my answer to that person is? You haven't. You have not done enough. It's a dying hope. You'll never do enough. It's not taking you anywhere. No wonder First Peter 1.3, look at it for yourself. Peter says, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope, a hope that, that, hope that has life in it. A, a hope that, that is living and active and that cannot be killed, that isn't diminishing. Say, how do you know that? Because it is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus alive? Then our hope is alive. It's all tied into him. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so that even if we die, it's okay because Jesus is alive. Our hope's tied to Him. And if He's alive, then not even death is a downer to us. It's gain. It's hope realized. And that's good because Jesus is the one, right, who has our inheritance, who is our inheritance. Jesus said in John fourteen nineteen, Because I live, you will live also. makes no sense then for Jesus to tell Nicodemus to look at the cross if he is still if Jesus is still dead, right? And we have no hope. The resurrection guarantees our future inheritance. Alright. Substance of our inheritance, God himself is the source of it too. Stimulant of it is mercy, Right? The spawn of our inheritance, how we get it, he caused it by new birth. Number four, the shape of our inheritance. Real simple here, verse four. To obtain an inheritance. And then he describes it in three ways. And he does it, it's very interesting to me, he does it by telling us what it isn't. So 
Sometimes you can't find the best words to say what something is, and so you just have to say what it isn't, right? You ever do that? He says, uh, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Literally, unfadeable. Break this down here. The, the word, the first word, uh, aftartos, means not able to be corrupted. That is freedom from de- death and decay. Freedom from death and decay. And then there's amianton, which means freedom from uncleanness or moral impurity. And then there's amaranton. I'm giving you the Greek words here so I can help you. Because this word means freedom from the ravages of time. And so the fading of flowers or even the ravaging that comes from an invading army. Now here's Peter and he has this Jewish background and maybe he's thinking of the inheritance that Israel had and how in Israel's history you had the history of where all the time you had armies that came in and that ravaged and took away what she had. In fact, are you ready for this? I read that Jerusalem was leveled at least 17 different times throughout her history. Isn't that incredible? Peter says, you have an inheritance that is never going to be leveled. It is indestructible. McDonald says, these three negative terms picture the inheritance as death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. Isn't that good? That's a good inheritance. We have treasure in our salvation. We have a, a fortune that cannot be stolen. It can't be damaged. Matthew 6, Jesus, we can't be swindled out of. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? It is God through Christ himself. That's the shape of it. That word for undefiled means something that cannot be stained or polluted. Sin pollutes, right? In fact, since the fall, the whole earth is cursed. It's all corrupt. I mean, why do we put stock in this thing? Why try to get it to last longer? Romans 8, it groans to be redeemed. But our inheritance, it, it, it isn't undefiled. The root word here means to color something by painting or staining it. Everything in this life is stained by sin. Everything. And the inheritance is the opposite of that. Remember Philippians 3? Paul says that all things I counted as gain, now I count as rubbish or garbage. I realize now that it's all garbage. Remember what he contrasts it to? The righteousness based on faith in Christ. His righteousness. We have that as our inheritance. And then you have that word unfading. That's a time word. Time is what causes flowers and colors and beautiful smells and scenery to just fade. We have an inheritance that is unaffected by time, never going to fade, never going to get old. One last point about our inheritance, number five. And let's call this one the security of our inheritance. The security of it. 
all this work by the Lord, making himself available to us, giving us mercy so we can receive it and all that. Making it amazing and attractive and satisfying. But what if I, what if I, is it going to last? What if I struggle? What if I'm not that faithful? How secure is this? I mean, back in the 1920s, that was the biggest question, right? Remember that? Reading about it? Remember, you, I know you weren't there. I mean, I put money in the bank, creditors guarantee security, and then there's a run. And how secure is this wealth? Can somebody take it? Can I lose it? Well, take a look at it. This inheritance is as secure as it can be. Verse 4, it is reserved in heaven. The word reserve comes from the word tereo, which means to watch or guard or, or protect. Kenneth Weiss, describing it, says, heaven is a safe deposit box where God is guarding our inheritance for us under constant surveillance. End quote. As one author put it, heaven will never know any invasion. I like that. No runs. No runs in heaven. By the way, think of its potential invaders. Demons, evil spirits, the devil. No, our treasure is secure there because it is guarded by God himself. Notice verse 5, who are protected by the power of God. That's just tremendous. It's safe. This is eternal security. Anybody comes along and says, well, you know, you could lose your salvation. I say, well, who's keeping it? I mean, if God is, then I say it's impossible. And that's what this says, protected by the power of God. See? Our inheritance, our salvation. I mean, Jude, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of God with his glory and great joy. And by the way, that, that word protect is another military term for guarding. But this time, this word means not only to guard against those coming in, it is also used to guard prisoners trying to get out. Think about that. It guards in both directions. Others trying to take what you have, including the devil and his demons, and it guards even you from trying to jump ship. Remember Jonah? He thought he could outrun God, and God found him at the bottom of the ocean, put him in a fish, giant fish. God's not going to let him run. He says, so I have nothing to do with this. Well, what's it say? Through faith. That's your part. And what it means by connecting it to the power of God is that God works that in you. You're, you understand that? Even the faith you have, God has worked that in you. Philippians 2, 2, 2, 12 and 13, he works the grace in you. He gets you to exercise faith. You say, but it is, but is it my faith? Yes. Listen, but it's there because God works it in. And God never does it any other way. We can talk about all kinds of illustrations. You can use the illustration of Abraham in Genesis 15 where verse 6, it says he believed God and then God had him make the offerings and, and then he put him into a dreamy, dreamy state. He was going to make a covenant with him and he made a covenant with him. 
But he was, but, but did you notice he had nothing to do with it? And it says that God walked right through. It's Abraham's faith, but God did this. He worked it in him. Or how about Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel prayed, he had faith, right? Yeah, but the Lord shut the, the mouths of the lions. Now to make sure that we understand all of this, we get to the end, verse 5. He says, we're going to make it all the way for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, it's ready. There is nothing more to add to this salvation, to this inheritance. All right, put it all together. We're chosen, verse 1. That's our salvation. With it comes an inheritance. Tell us more, Peter. The substance of it, God himself, the stimulant. What God, what made God give it to us? His mercy, right? The spawn of this, what, how did we get it? I mean, he caused us to be born again, the new birth. And that new birth gave us living hope, not like the dead hope we have before salvation. And all because Jesus rose from the grave. Now, the shape What's this inheritance like? Death-resistant, sin-resistant, time-resistant, indestructible, irrefutable, immortal, and the security of it kept by God who works faith in us to hold on. Isn't that good? You ever wonder that? I wonder it all the time. Where is this faith coming from? Because there are times when I want to press the eject button. He doesn't let me. He said, well, why don't you just recant? Remember Hugh Latimer? I'll end with Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, gospel preacher, England, 1500s. Proclaimed the gospel. Bloody Mary came around, said, not so fast. You'll die if you keep doing that. So, you can have your family and your friends or you can just die. But all you have to do is sign this document here and we'll get you out of this prison and you'll go enjoy, go enjoy being with your family. Maybe he was thinking to himself, I'll just be a closet Christian. Quiet. And he wrote and he signed it. And then the next day, they let him out. The next day he came back said, forget it. I recant what I recanted. They said, fine. They took him to be burnt at the stake. And Hugh Latimer said, hang on. Light, when you go to light this fire, light it first with this hand so that it will be really clear to my master that I was faithful to the end. Couldn't take his faith away. Oh, that we would understand the inheritance that we have and the God who we serve. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so much. We owe you our lives of love. I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, keep working that faith in us. Thank you for the promise of that. Lord, as we reflect on the salvation that we have, this inheritance, may it increase our worship. Help us to sing loud, Lord, not because we want 
to impress others with our voices. We know that's not that impressive. But that we would just let our hearts reach heaven so that it would be clear, Lord, that we are so thankful for this great salvation that you've given us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.